Hi everyone and welcome to Hit the Apex. It is our Monaco Grand Prix preview edition where we've actually got pre-practice on in the background as well. It's Thursday of course and you know Monaco always they have uh, practice on the Thursday because Friday's their rest day. I wish we had Friday off here as well um, in Australia but Alas, that's not the case. Anyway, I'm Jawad, as always, joined by Baden. Um, we're already here. It's the jewel in the crown, and um, six races into the championship, and still all to play for. Yeah, an interesting juncture that we reach once again. Monaco, it's a bit of a an outlier to the rest of the season, so it's probably hard to say in the truest sense that Mercedes has the momentum coming here because the circuit, as we've seen uh, particularly last season, probably doesn't play to its strengths with that longer wheelbase. So they're going to be looking to maximise the points and it's really on Ferrari to make sure in, in Mercedes' stead that that it really cashes in and to an extent Red Bull after their issues earlier on in the season, they're looking really quite confident to to perhaps jag another victory and we don't need to mention Daniel Ricciardo, he's got unfinished business here. Well yeah, we'll talk about Dan the Avenger a bit later but anyway, you could say this is the race, one and only race maybe on the uh, calendar where... Red Bull and Ferrari are just already ahead of Mercedes in terms of being suited to this track. Mercedes coming into this race said that they're bloody worried, using their own terms, uh, terminology there. So it already goes to show you, yes, we're going to be looking out for Ferrari and for Red Bull at this race. And I guess for Sebastian Vettel, who won the race here last year, you know, it would be de a definite boost to his uh, points tally for the season, as we pointed out last week. He's gone three races now without finishing on the podium. Um, he scored points, of course, in all of them, but, you know, after those two wins that he took back-to-back -to -back at the start of the year, not being on the podium, he's obviously had all sorts of uh, issues, a bit of bad luck, you know, and then um, ill strategy, you could say, as well, from the Ferrari side. So um, we'll definitely be looking for him to get a good result, just so that... Um, points margin I guess stays single digit you could say because every time it gets double digit you always have that concern that someone like a Lewis Hamilton as soon as he gets on a roll I mean he's won two races in a row already after not having any mojo at all before the Baku race so um, if he gets on a roll keeps winning and he could easily go on and win consecutive races and then it's almost uh, goodbye moon, goodnight moon for him so yeah it'll be an interesting one from the Ferrari perspective but Red Bull too, as you said before, um, this is probably their best chance um, all season to get another victory easily, that is. We don't know what will happen. Uh, you know, there could be uh, outcomes and circumstances that lead to another one later, but... Yeah, Daniel Ricciardo, the Avenger, you could call him. 2016 was to be his year. Didn't end up being the case because of that botched pit stop. Um, but yeah, if uh, he can put it on pole, this could be his race. Yeah, I think we've really seen Daniel Ricciardo, when he gets it together around one lap, um, more often than not lately, we've seen Max Verstappen pips him in that third qualifying. But when Ricciardo really uh, excels at a track such as a Monaco, he's pretty much unstoppable. So if he could, by any chance, get himself on that front row, I think it's going to be quite hard to to go past him for, for the victory. That's assuming, of course, no, watch pit stops and you can make a good start. But he just has that real uh, confidence about him here and what is essentially his uh, second home race. Yeah, you could say that for sure. And uh, Verstappen going to Max Verstappen, that is... Um 
hasn't really had too much luck here, or you could say, I guess. He uh, it's, every year he's well, it's pretty here. much exactly, yeah. And that one with Grosjean, I think, was probably the biggest of them all, where uh, basically he just brake tested uh, Roman there. Poor Roman. We'll talk about him a bit later, anyway. But yeah, Verstappen can he turn around his fortunes here? Will be it will be interesting to see as well. So um, yeah, going back to Dan, stick it on pole, or you know, even on the front row is it's pretty good and. We've seen Mark Webber having been quite successful around here in the past, and he, you know, basically Webber took the bulk of Red Bull's wins around Monaco as well. Three, I think, in two total, or in two in Vettel total. Got yeah, that lucky one in twenty eleven. Yeah, so um, you know, Aussies and Monaco seem to gel nicely together. So it'd be nice for Dan to have his seventh career victory here in Monaco, and I guess it's just being talked about as being a possibility. And I think you know. If he can, it'll deliver. But um, I guess there's a lot of hype also around these hyper-soft tyres, which make their debut this weekend as well. So we saw them in pre-season, of course, and at the end of last year during the Abu Dhabi test, just briefly. Uh, but pre-season, I guess, can't, we couldn't really get a good read on them because the conditions were so cold. But um, yeah, you know, record lap times is what we can expect around here in Monaco. Probably the fastest ever Monaco Grand Prix, um, barring intervention of the safety car, which no doubtly will happen. But um, it'll still be a one-stop race, which means um, it'll all just be about who's going to be quickest on those tyres. Yeah, even a bit of talk, regardless of the fact that it's the most extreme compound there um, and the, the extreme speed that we will see that it could last for most of the balance of the race I believe the Pirelli chief saying it could run for 77 laps which is quite absurd to think that this durability exists in uh, opposite to what we were used to probably four or five seasons ago well, when I you're guess... getting around one lap and the tyres are completely cheddar well as you said Monaco is one of those it's an outlier so I guess around here you know you could have um blue tack and it'll still last the race distance so i guess it's just the surface of monaco here but if we see it around at other tracks i think in montreal next time out they're going to have the hypersoft tire as well and i don't know what other circuits um for the rest of the season we'll just have to check that one up for you um but yeah you know it'll be interesting to see how it goes at other tracks as well as monaco but yeah you know we should expect lap records to be smashed um and Hopefully, uh, you know, a, a quick race and just puts more pressure on the drivers to try and get more out of the laps. Who's the bravest, as you said before, with Daniel Ricciardo? Are you brave enough to try and get that extra tenth or hundredth out of the tyres or whatever? You know, explore the limits of your group. That's that's Monaco. We all think of Ayrton Senna's pole lap in 88, which was, you know, one of the most breathtaking things you could see, so, and mind you, it's also the 30th anniversary of that this year as well, since he set that lap in 88, so, yeah, I guess that's what sort of encapsulates Formula One, that's what it's all about, and, um, yeah, whoever nails that lap on and all that sort of, back to, back to this year's race anyway, so, um, yeah, between Lewis Hamilton and Sebastian Vettel, 17 points in the championship um, after Hamilton's win Barcelona, both have won this race twice, um, Hamilton 2016, of course, inheriting that win mm, from Ricardo, yes. but also, you know, seeing a replay of that um that race or some highlights of it today just seeing Hamilton's 
uh, tactics as well. You know, we saw Ricardo in the wet hold up behind Hamilton. He had the pace to pass, but Hamilton was being a bit tricky and bit tricky, a bit naughty, bit naughty, you could say, and just uh, yeah, basically blocked him. I think did a really double ran him into the wall coming out of Portier. Yeah, the, the out of the tunnel. Yeah, into the um, that section, just almost runs him into the wall, and yeah, no wonder Dan wasn't too happy about that afterwards. But yeah, Vettel, he say that Monaco, if you take pole, you are guaranteed the win, but. Not always the case because the last two races have been not one from pole position. And I guess we've talked about 16. Will he be allowed to win the race? Who knows? There's a lot of hypotheticals around that. So, um, but yeah, as always, safety cars. Could there be weather in the air? I mean, it was raining earlier in the week there in Monaco. I'm not sure what the forecast is like for the rest of the weekend. But well, based on what we're viewing presently, it's a little bit grey, a little bit misty. You can see over that mountain, a little bit of fog covering the yeah, the so early that clears by uh, the, the guys like Renault and Haas, McLaren, they have, might have an opportunity for a podium here if things go awry for the guys at the top. So could this be the best opportunity that one of those guys have for getting a podium um, early on in the season? You know, uh, I've heard talk of, you know, what if Fernando Alonso gets on the podium for McLaren? How many times are we going to say, could this be McLaren's breakthrough oh, well, yeah. for the last year? So him, actually, we'll touch on that in a second, but Kevin Magnussen's been in good form as well, and he's been on the podium before, so, you know, Haas, I guess, they're a bit sheepish about their form this weekend, Kevin saying that, oh, they might not have that same advantage that they did for the last few races here, because, um, you know, this not being... a track that really favours a particular power unit, um, it sort of evens out the playing field a little bit, it just comes down to chassis, what the chassis is like, and this is where, you know, maybe guys like Torosso, Sauber even could score some surprise points, Williams forget about them because their chassis is not going to work whatsoever, we already seen Sergei Sorotkin have a bit of a moment coming down the pit straight, but um, yeah, you know, surprise results, we, we've got to expect it this weekend. Yeah, it just needs a little bit of intervention, a bit of opportunism, and um, really uh, it's up to those teams to see that potential, um, whether it's drawing that line between being desperate or throwing it away. But um, the way that the the season works, it's pretty ruthless, and you just don't know again when those opportunities will arise. So I think that outside of it's pretty hard to see any of those um, top three not prevailing on on Sunday, to be honest. Oh, for the win-wise. As far as it comes to, yeah, maybe like jagging a, a top five, then absolutely it's it's one of those rarities where anyone from that midfield is in the mix and that extends all the way really down to, to Sauber. Yeah, and um, Force India, probably the last team who were surprise podium finishes back in 2016, Sergio Perez getting that one back then so you know it shows you that it can happen and uh, yeah who knows it's basically the points are there for who can survive the attrition which will be pretty crucial and Sauber I guess Charles Leclerc you know being the first local driver could he be the first local driver to score points since Louis Chiron back in 1950 the year that Formula One basically uh, was invented he finished on the podium that year <laughs> Louis Chiron he was about 52 at the time I yeah think, as so well so um, Leclerc, you know, uh, could he be uh, the one who breaks the drought? I guess we had the last Monegasque driver who 
raced at the Monaco Grand Prix was Olivia Beretta back in 94, but didn't end up scoring there. So, and uh, for Leclerc as well, you know, his last race, we saw him score some points. He scored points in Baku. So, you know, maybe three races in a row, we could have points for Sauber, which would be quite something. We haven't seen them score points three races in a row for... I'm trying to think now. 2013, 2012, surely. Maybe 20, yeah, it could even be just 2012 back when they actually were podium contenders. So, yeah, it's going to be an interesting one for those guys. Williams, I basically have no hope for them this weekend. <laughs> if they can both survive the first 10 laps, then, you know. <laughs> it's like not even make it to the first Well, stop. remember just last just year, well, you remember last year with Lance Stroll basically crying for help like Bambi or whatever, so, you know, what's he learnt in a year? He's cut him some slack, though. To be fair, on, on sole race performances, he's not abysmal, but the car just offers nothing to anyone who ever hoped to set foot in it. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I feel for poor Sorotkin and Stroll in that case. And um, quickly on Brennan Hartley as well, um, I guess he needs a good result as well for his own confidence, but there's talk that, you know, he's under pressure to retain his drive and perhaps that he could be dumped as soon as the next race in Canada um, with Red Bull looking perhaps to use Pascal Verline, bring him back into F1 and have him replace Hartley. That would be quite harsh, you could say, the fact that I guess Hartley hasn't really put a foot wrong, but just hasn't really scored any, like, the thing is, Pierre Gasly got fourth in Bahrain. That's a, a bit of an anomalous result. So to use that as a yardstick, I guess, is a bit unfair. And for Toro Rosso, I've always said that this year is going to be more of a development year. I mean, they're just basically helping Honda develop that power unit for Red Bull for next year. And I guess the experience that Hartley brings from his uh, sports car days um, with fuel management, tyre management hybrid energy management, all that sort of stuff, is actually valuable to the team and to Honda as well. So if, uh, yeah, the ruthless Dr. Helmut Marco looks to get rid of him pretty quickly, I think it'll be hard done, pretty hard done by. Yeah, they need to look beyond purely Hartley being there as a points contender. It's what he offers for the longer term for, for Honda and then just uh, moving forward for Toro Rosso, just having that um, central reliable driver who can complete a race distance at least. Sure, he's been a little bit scrappy here and there the last couple but, of weekends. But his only retirement um, this year was not even his fault. It was his teammate that ran into him in China. And I guess for every other race, he's been a bit anonymous, you could say. I guess the one big blemish probably was Baku qualifying and that was it but then he went on to score a point in that race anyway so I guess he's just been a bit anonymous you could say he hasn't really stood out amongst the pack and yes because Honda and Toro so I guess well Honda power wise are still down on the rest of the field but you know they're coming along you know they've got the reliability happening now and it's not as diabolical as the end of last year was for um hartley when he basically retired from every race because of a renault power unit failure so yeah it's an interesting one to look at but i I certainly hope that he gets to see out the season at least oh at the very least give him till the mid-year break and by that point if he's bringing up the rear then maybe there's some merit to making change but I think he's earned the the, the right after what he's been through and the whole background to the, the story it would be a pretty uh, 
ironic and embarrassing postscript after being dumped initially and then finding his way in sports cars he gets that reprieve and then suddenly within a quarter or a third of the season he's back on his haunches again by the same ruthless sword of the one-eyed uh, cyclops then basically that be, yeah that would be uh, very uh, very much something you couldn't make up sounds like a tale for a good narrative that the sort of the one-eyed cyclops but anyway yeah should be a great race good weekend hopefully i mean last time out we were pretty exhausted by the end of Barcelona, or not even halfway through the race, and we felt like going to sleep. And a um, bit of a shock to the system, actually, finding out that the French Grand Prix is on a- an hour later than the time that um, we thought it would be on. It's after midnight, basically. So, yeah, it's uh, these ones are taking a toll on us this year, you could say, already, um, with that change in the time um, uh, to have the races an hour and ten minutes afterwards. But... Yeah, you were going to say? Spare a thought for... We think it was bad enough through um, 10 o'clock New Zealand would have been midnight. Well, in this case, it's going to be 2 a.m. for those Antipodean neighbours there if they're that keen on uh, the poor. Well, they're probably well, it. they're probably going to give up if they dump Hartley and then you know call for Helmet Marco's blood, basically having been dumped twice by him. So yeah, we'll see how they go. But anyway, let's move it on into the digest then for this week. And um, yeah, I guess some of the big news uh, that came out was um, McLaren getting a new shareholder on board and in the form of um, the Latifi family of course Nicholas Latifi trying to make a name for himself in um, Formula 2 his father another wealthy Canadian far wealthier than Lawrence Stroll it must be said as well I didn't think that was possible but um, it is so he's injected 200 million euros into the McLaren group um, the entire organization and basically he's taken that stake that was uh, vacated by Ron Dennis so the stake that uh, Dennis had um, prior to being ousted that's been taken over by the Latifi family now so I guess you could say it is positive for them they found new investor in them someone who's got belief that perhaps you know they will move forward in in formula one again it's not i guess in the stroll way um a avenue to push the sun into f1 they've already said that you know i guess nicholas is someone who's probably going to have more credentials before he gets into f1 unlike the stroll boy but um the stroll boy the stroll boy like he's some evil benefactor who who clearly just had the honeypot given and doused over him. He looks like it. He looks like it. But anyway, um, I guess it's just uh, this area when you see kids walking up, (laughs) kids around here, they're so entitled and all that. It's just, uh, they're like little lawn strolls running around. (laughs) Anyway, let's move it on. But yeah, it's good news for McLaren because... As we know, they've not had title a title sponsor for how many years now? Since 2013. Um, and the poor results that they've had over the last few years, everyone's wondered, is that going to do good for them in terms of attracting investors and sponsorships? So it's a, it's a pretty big win for them. Yeah, I think uh, in that interest of transparency, at least it's been set up that there'll be no, um, I guess, nepotism, you could say, there with that stake. Um, opening a, a pathway for uh, Nicholas Latifi there to come in. He's probably a way off legitimately belonging on the grid, and who knows, it could be like a, a Force India or, dare we say, a Williams once the credentials are there with um, Latifi's backing within McLaren to get the idea of how to, to run and perhaps take on a majority stake in one of those midfield operations that it could be a bit more of a, 
of a realistic proposition. But for now, I guess it's a bit of a, a win-win for for both and for McLaren, just a little bit of stability amid this time of uncertainty after um, cutting itself loose from the, the Honda era. Yeah, exactly. Um, moving it on then, um, and this is something that you talked about in your article this week, is um, uh, Baku is looking to exercise their break clause to in their uh, contract to negotiate a better deal um, with F1. So, of course, Baku probably... Bernie Eccleston's last will and testament, um, the fact that he rorted them for who knows how many billions of dollars. Yeah, we must add Flavio Briatore. And Flavio Briatore being a benefactor (laughs) of all this. Um, They've basically seen how Liberty are a bit more lenient on their customers and are looking to renegotiate the deal. So I'll get you to talk through this. Baku, are they really in the position to to be posturing, as you use the term, um, with F1? I mean, we saw Silverstone do it last year, and I guess with rightly so, because they were basically heading towards bankruptcy and had no funding or whatever. So, you know, they'd be hoping to secure a new deal before this one finishes in 2019, or the this agreement will end at the end of next year, meaning next year could be the last Silverstone Grand Prix. So with Baku, I mean... Why do they think they're in the position to be able to do this? Obviously feeling quite confident having played host to two of the more memorable events in recent seasons. They think they've got a bit of a a leg up and a free pass there. But Liberty, uh, they want to play their cards carefully. They don't want to go all out and just say, oh, can we renegotiate from scratch because oh, we've got some sort of historical benefit to the region and to you as a... As a company, Liberty also needs to be careful to straddle that line between being seen to be really soft and also getting what it needs out of its own investment. And that that probably uh, is a separate case for a Silverstone. Liberty understands its value and historically from the the origins of the the World Championship. And you can see Silverstone, that uh, previous deal was negotiated really amid crisis it was off the calendar for all all intents before 2010 and only a a real last ditch um, agreement was struck with the the Eccleston regime and that was a loss making leader that's for sure so uh, they really are within their rights to to have a an alteration made but for these other circuits that have only been around for three or four seasons they're really rolling the dice if they think that they can uh, go and say oh can we get a free race or can we pay 20 percent of what we were paying previously yeah because especially when liberty media have got a long roster of races in the waiting i mean we heard about miami um potentially happening next year there's hanoi on the cards copenhagen as well um looking to happen and then germany they want to look for a deal as well beyond next year and i guess the current agreement that is with the formula one group is that it's on a biannual basis where on a biannual but every second year they'll have it at the hockenheim where the other year is supposed to be at the nurburgring but the nurburgring as we know hasn't held a race since 2013 and whether they hold a race in the future again is remains to be seen but i'd, I'd certainly like to see German Grand Prix back on there, whether, you know, they explore the idea of perhaps having a street race in Berlin or something at that the, the Tempelhof airport that's abandoned. They do the Formula E there at the moment, but perhaps use a different uh, circuit configuration as, as as I've heard or it's been talked about. But again, you know, Hockenheim, Nürburgring, if they can revive those races, that would be great. But at the same time, we haven't really had 
the German Grand Prix or a classic German Grand Prix over the last few years to really stand out and say, oh, you know, that's an event that we've got to have on the calendar sort of thing. So it's not one that I would would miss, but it's one that it would be nice to see on the calendar. Kind of like Malaysia, you know. Malaysia was it was good when it was there, but it's not one I'm going to miss while it's not there. But if they do end up bringing it back on the calendar, that would be great. You know, 2012 in Hockenheim and 2013 at Nürburgring, probably the two most recent editions of the German Grand Prix, which really um, went to the wire. Yeah, 2013, certainly, with uh, Kimi and Seb having a great battle there at the end. In 2012, we had Button and Vettel coming to blows, really, and that got quite heated. In the and end. Hamilton being lapped like... <laughs> yes, I'm not yeah. going to use the terminology that I was going to. It's a bit crude, but yeah, he was basically just being... Uh, I think he was telling the guys after one lap that it was all not worth it. He should give up and having his little hissy fit from, from yeah. memory. So there was that. But for Germany, you can see it's just always been a bit of a, a misnomer to, to think of the success that Mercedes has, Vettel's had, and off the back of the Schumacher era, that they just don't seem to embrace the sport as you would associate someone when they're so sharply within that uh, sphere of domination over the past few oh, decades. Oh, yeah, I guess post-Schumacher, it's not really clicked for them. So, um, yeah, probably a lot of factors in to do with that. But, um, yeah, it's not a race that, you know, as I said before, would be missed I guess if uh, it doesn't come to pass that they get a new deal so yeah but at the same time while we're on this topic what are your thoughts on Liberty leaning towards street circuits more like I like street circuits but I don't want the whole calendar to be I don't want it to turn into a Formula E type roster basically where we just go to street tracks I mean we've got to have those uh, classic uh, permanent tracks in there. Like, I didn't like how the calendar basi- basically became a calendar of uh, Tilkadromes back in the early 2010s, you know. We were going to places like Korea, India, that just seemed like they were all one after another and it almost seemed like we're going to the same race and the same outcome. So, I don't want that either, but I don't want a whole roster full of uh, street races. So, where do we find the balance? Yeah, probably for each continent, it's good for them to have uh, one street race. Australia is a quasi-street circuit. It fills that that hybrid breach between being a street circuit and just a conventional semi-permanent racetrack in one. Montreal also fits the bill there. Maybe America with uh, Austin complemented by Miami. Then you look to Europe. Europe could really do with a... A legitimate street race. Monaco is probably unique in its own right, but one in the heartland of Europe would also be appropriate. The Copenhagen one they're talking about. Copenhagen or Berlin, that's right up its alley. And then who else? Asia. Asia's got... um, course Singapore but there's always room for other events yeah like so Hanoi. yeah Hanoi will be a street race so yeah you know um exploring permanent facilities um perhaps they need to look at that as well for the future because um it's certainly a staple of Formula One and um it would just yeah it wouldn't be as great if it just all became street tracks because I I love seeing the vision of going through corners of cars going through corners like Spa or at Silverstone with Maggots and Beckett's you know it's high speed it's fast it's swooping you know it's the the kind of stuff of it's like a roller coaster basically yeah maybe cap it at a third you wouldn't want more than six or seven races where it's a got the the stop start nature that you see with a, a Monaco of course the spectacle's great you more time seeing those cars at 
slow speed, but you want the pure nature of um, a car being completely untamed and just um, reaching maximum potential. That's what it's all about. Yeah, exactly. But um, yeah, reaching maximal potential, maximum potential also requires good tyres and Pirelli have come out um, or it's being speculated that Pirelli are going to simplify the 2019 compounds. So we're going back to just three tyre compounds. Um, Yeah, so designated by soft, medium and hard tyres. But here's the catch is that at every race, they're going to be different. So even though we're going to call them soft, medium and hard, it'll be like, let's say Monaco, for example, where you've got hyper soft, ultra soft and super soft but they'll be designated as soft, medium, and hard. So <laughs> We could essentially get the third uh, third softest tyre this year representing the hard next year yeah. in any event as a notional. But, and the colours... That could also become a hard. Yeah, so kind of like they do in supercars, I think, as well, or in, um, in MotoGP. But, yeah, they'll only have three colours, so white's going to become your soft... Uh, yellow will be medium and red will be hard. So it's basically flipping them around as they are currently. But um, I guess I kind of like having the colourful tyres. It's pretty trippy, in fact. But um, yeah, not having too many compounds, perhaps less complicated for fans. But then when we talk about each race, it's like, okay, well, this is what used to be the hypersoft tyre. So, and this used to be the medium tyre, but it's now the hard tyre and stuff like that. So that will probably confuse people. But, you know, at the same time, I do understand the logic in, in trying to simplify it there. That's F1. But from a marketing perspective, it's not a big win because the colours, they sell product for Pirelli. But anyway, let's move it on now. And um, uh, Indy 500, the other jewel in the crown, I guess part of the triple crown is on this weekend as well. And um, we saw Ed Carpenter take pole position for the race, of course. Will Power, the Aussie, lining up third. Um, Potential victor there if he can get it done. Danica Patrick in her final race um, before she retires from all motorsport. Seventh, which is pretty good. Scott Dixon, the Kiwi quasi-Aussie, you could say, in ninth. And uh, Alexander Rossi, 32nd on the grid. So he has it all to do from the back there. He won the race, of course, in 2016. And I guess just looking back to last year's race and um, seeing Fernando Alonso in there, he was up in contention until, of course, a Honda engine blew on him and cruel his chances. Um, it is definitely one of those races that, you know, even if you're not a big fan of IndyCar, it's worth watching because um yeah it's the biggest race of the year for them and quickly while we're on i guess american motorsports um roger penske got announced um earlier today um be, has been inducted in the nascar hall of fame so good on roger there so just goes to show you his power and influence in world motorsport if not you know just in america now with djr team penske here in australia that yeah he's achieved quite a bit in his tenure yeah, across so many um, categories that you think it's amusing to believe. Back in the 70s, he even doubled in Formula One and then, of course, made his name most prominently in IndyCar and then probably the, the 90s, 2000s, moved across to the NASCAR And he's scene. won 100 to races be, in NASCAR as well. To, to be so successful across the board rather than just be, being a presence for his own marketing needs you can see that he really puts in the full resources and um, he's already made it work in Australia in four or five years so wherever he goes he makes it a proper success. He does I mean it's always mouth-watering to think whether he'd ever make it back into F1 or whatever or 
look at making uh, a tie-up perhaps with an existing team on the grid. I mean, that would just be a pipe dream, basically, seeing a big name like Roger Penske come back into F1 and try and battle it out with the established order. But anyway, while we're talking of Penske, let's move it on to supercars. And we had the Winton Super Sprint on over the weekend as well, um, which unfortunately you couldn't catch, which we'll touch on a bit later anyway. But um, yeah, um, big talking points, I guess, coming out of it. We talked about this at length last week, Nissan pulling the plug on the program. And what do they do? Karma, come out and win their first race since 2016 and uh, it was a pretty good win as well for for Nissan and for Rick Kelly who hadn't won a race since 2011 um, so we had Scott McLaughlin basically reading, leading the entire race safety car comes out with eight laps to go oh sorry with 10 laps to go and then um, when the restart happened it was eight laps to go cold tires McLaughlin goes straight off at turn one and Rick Kelly inherits the lead has Scott Pye on his rear basically hunting him down but uh, in the end Kelly I guess with the determination with the week that he's had with his team and his brother I guess yeah it was an emphatic win and do you remember saying nothing to you on the the Friday when they topped the practice sheets? How would the irony be here if they went and had a victory over the weekend? And lo and behold, that's exactly what they did. Just despite the, those, um, I guess, locally or back in Japan, they've uh, possibly jumped the gun a little bit. But you've got to take it in um, objectivity that this circuit, I guess, it's quite, again, unique. So they probably need to back it up. Oh, yeah. Continue. Like They had the good result, the good weekend at Phillip Island. But... For what it's worth, it's still a bittersweet moment. Yeah, it is definitely. And I guess there's a circuit that they do a lot of testing at as well. So they've got that mileage under their belt. But what it was, it was probably one of the feel-good moments of the year, you could say, for Nissan. And considering how deprived of success they've been in this tenure, you know, it was nice to see them get it on the board. And perhaps, you know, continuing into next year perhaps the development that they can make on their own even without the manufacturer support could go away into them winning races regularly and who knows maybe if they continue the ultimate project um, beyond next year and if it can maintain parity they could potentially be championship contenders but again that's that'd just be, all hypothetical if they were still continuing with that fossil into the tw- 2020s <laughs> well you know it's, it's still all a hypothetical but anyway um for what it is it was a great moment for them and um big boost this year because at least they've got a race winner race winning car under their belt if they can uh nail it at every circuit they go to but um the second race on the weekend i guess it was a a podium domination by the kiwis and it was a kiwi one two three fabian coulthard i guess notching up his first win of the season i guess a timely reminder that he's still there um scotty didn't really get the best of starts and fell back into the pack so coulthard took the lead and basically just led the race from there and shane van gisbergen had a good weekend despite his teammates not really being up there so he was on the podium for the second time and then mclaughlin racing his way back to third so yeah timely win for coulthard there i guess for his confidence as well but um I guess we're still a long way off this championship, but, you know, do you see him as a contender this year? Oh, on the basis of the season to date, he's been a bit too inconsistent, but for his own point of view, this is a mini 
relaunch and he just needs to to take uh, some momentum away from really it's been team mclaughlin from the the outset and um we saw last year what coulthard was capable of when he was stringing those results together so he just needs to to get it right from the friday and um yeah be, be top five top three if you can just like you see these guys they're not always victories but they're always there or thereabouts and they have their scrapes but they somehow get it together whereas you see guys like Coulthard more often than not they end up right down the field and that's what's um put them in this position where they've got to have a lot go right for the, the balance of the season well yeah that's basically where I was going to touch on next with um uh, the off weekend I guess that couple of our contenders have had um well had had in Winton and Jamie Wincup and David Reynolds both they lost a stack of points I mean David Reynolds I think top 15 15th I think was his best result on the Sunday you know and then he was 25th in the the Saturday race so that was no good at all for him and in Win Cup as well just I guess perplexed by the lack of pace that um they've had and I guess it's the the second weekend in two in three events sorry because Phillip Island was the other one where he was nowhere with Triple Eight and Red Bull Racing uh, or Red Bull Holden Racing Team and then again in um in Winton so yeah they've lost I think they're both I think 300 plus points behind in the championship now and for Reynolds I guess you know we talked about him at the start of the year how this was the best start to a season he's had and the fact that um He's been on the podium. He won the race at the Grand Prix as well. He's in contention. So, you know, it kind of worries you with someone like Reynolds and Erebus is because, you know, you thought that perhaps they could string it together. But, you know, one bad weekend, they might end up falling behind. But, yeah, hopefully they use this little layoff we've got now until um, I think it's the middle of June when they head back to Darwin um, if he can get himself back up there. But otherwise, yeah. It's a bit of a concern. Yeah, well, McLaughlin, you see, he gets a fifth and a third, and he still retains a comfortable lead just because he he kept himself clean, essentially. And um, these other guys who had howlers, they've really uh, gone off the boil just like that, even though they've they've had pretty good campaigns to date. So um, it's really um, fascinating the way that the condensed... Um, standings works you can go from being maybe sixth or seventh up to third or fourth and then down to eighth or ninth within the space of a couple of weekends in supercars and then you can get another driver who mightn't have the best weekend and yet they consolidate a lead at the, at the top important record too so he's got 40 career polls to his name now and he's only 24 years old as well and um he's already fifth on the all-time pole record in supercars um just above alan moffat now who had i think we mentioned a while back just how clinical he is he's just so clean and um leaves very little room for for things to to play into other people's hands well i guess that after the end of last year i guess it was a big moment the way that that championship wrapped up so acrimoniously that it did and uh, the championship um you know uh, over alan pross so maybe that's the moment that um mclaughlin needed to iron out that those issues and you know just came back this year a whole lot more mature than perhaps last year even though last year he really didn't have many blemish camp david Russell, david russell sorry has come over from nissan and he ended up being the fastest on that in that session in the cam orders number six car james moffat of course joins uh chas moss and him even though we were kind of sad that maddie campbell couldn't pair up with van gisbergen again this season because of the world endurance championship 
initially before Fernando Alonso got the calendar changed. But uh, yeah, Bamba's still a pretty big name to have. Yeah, you can see the interest is reciprocal. It's not just uh, something of convenience. He seems keen for as much time in the seat as he can. And um, who knows if he shapes up along the, the Stanaway pathway. It could yet be a full-time option after he's had a couple of enduro campaigns under his belt. Yeah, and um, while speaking of Stanaway, quick shout-out, you know, he finished in the top 10 for the first time as well this season after the torrid start that he's had to his full-time career. So perhaps, you know, things are sort of, I guess maybe a leaf has been turned there and I guess it's just been bad luck. You know, he's been involved in a lot of first lap incidents, you know, qualifying so low down in the field. It's so common to be caught up um, in the melees back there and of course reliability on on the Tickford side as well was sort of let him down so you know hopefully from here on he can just move up the grid and qualify better and get those top 15s or top 10 results yeah I think there's always inevitable he'd um, be found a little bit out of his depth just um, not having that other driver to rely on that reference <coughs> reference point so I think that um, this season, it's probably going to be one where if you can crack a top five and maybe a, a podium at any point, it's a pass mark, but it'll be 2019 when we can really judge whether he's... Um, Came into the category as well. It took him a year to f- get himself settled and whatnot. So, um, yeah, now, you know, he's won a race, of course, and been on the podium pole position. So, yeah, it'll be the same with Stanaway, who's had a pretty, I guess, well-credentialed uh, path way into this category and we'll change categories again because we haven't really talked about MotoGP this much this season but uh, there's quite a bit to talk about already five races into the championship with um, Marc Marquez I guess unassailable 36 point lead after the the French Grand Prix over the weekend and what's not what's surprising well what's not but yeah it's just been so inconsistent with um, the season and Marquez has won three races in a row finding that form that he had back in 2014 when he won the first 10 races. No, his rivals just keep tripping over each other. Second time in a row that his competition, they're maybe looking like they're going to make a bit of a fight and they just have some sort of friendly fire or they just fall off of their own volition and Marquez can just close up the book after maybe 10 laps. It's, it's quite amusing, really, when you see that he's. it's almost been an effortless uh, season to date for him. He hasn't had to really do a... A whole lot and he's uh, halfway to uh, a fifth title in six seasons well as was said before in regards to mclaughlin watershed moment i guess for marquez argentina and that clash with valentino rossi the fallout from that perhaps that was a watershed for marquez too this season who likes to we as we know live it on the edge and whatnot but um yeah that form that he's been showing three race wins in a row i don't think he's won consecutive races since 2014 you look at you know 2015 I guess that was Lorenzo's championship but 16 and 17 you know even though he won those titles um he didn't win three races in a row at any stage in those seasons so yeah for Marquez to do that I guess it's pretty significant but as you say the rivals keep tripping over Andrea De Vizioso back-to-back DNFs now for him which was pretty I guess sad to see because he was up there last year he won the first race this year in Qatar and Thought, we thought he would be the main rival again for Marquez, but um, good to see anyway that he's renewed with Ducati for another two seasons. Um, a lot of silly season news, of course, in MotoGP land because 
a lot of those big names were out of contracts with their factories, but a lot of them have re-signed with their current um, teams. Rossi Vinales staying at Yamaha, Alex Rins staying at Suzuki, both the Aspargaro brothers are staying put at their respective teams with uh, KTM and Aprilia. But the big name, I guess, that's moved is Johan Zarco. I guess he was hot property. Um, he's moving to factory KTM team next year, which is pretty big, I guess, because Tech 3 as well, they're moving over to KTM as a customer too next year. So for Zarco to be on that factory bike is pretty significant. You can see he's clearly trying to position himself uh, as that nucleus for, for their um, bid over the next two or three years to to be title contenders, but he's made that bold leap and clearly he's got a bit of confidence from what he's seen on that development side and also a bit of talk that maybe in two years it'll be a, a lucrative option for a, a Mark Marquez if he can see the potential within that operation. Yeah, they've said that all along this season, but yeah, for Zarco to be leading his own factory, I mean, we've he's been the top Yamaha guy all season and that's pretty big to say, even though he's on a customer bike versus the um, the factory Yamaha efforts. So, you know, we know his potential and it's only a matter of time before he wins a race. I mean, it was pretty cruel, actually. He crashed out of his home race. He was on pole position. He had the, the weight of a nation on him, but yeah, just ended up crashing out, which was pretty sad. So hopefully he wins a race or two this season, which would be great. Yeah, that, that that's the little um, moment for them where it... Um can go from being something tangible um, in the sense that they they think they might have it to the real belief being there and just um, you know the rounded polish that you see in those those riders some of them put it on the edge and they make a silly mistake and you see someone like a Marquez now how infrequently he makes a mistake now he plays those percentages or even though he just I don't know rides the bike like one of those Texas bulls or whatever he's basically hanging off it every corner he goes through um don't know how he does it but it's subhuman superhuman those efforts but um going back to the silly season I guess there's only one big name left on the table um who hasn't signed a deal yet and that's Jorge Lorenzo and I guess you know it's a it's a big decision that he's got to make this next contract because it's uh you know he all he always used to like to rub it in Valentino Rossi's face, but I guess who's laughing now? You could say because um, Lorenzo thought by going to Ducati the, at the time that he did that he would be the leading guy and he would have been the guy to win the championship and everything. But Davizioso showed him up, and Lorenzo's just been nowhere. He's not won a race since he moved to Ducati. I think he scored maybe two or three podiums last year. And this year, you know, he's just looked so far off, you know, where Davizioso is, is even. So, well, it mirrors very much Valentino Rossi's tenure there about five seasons ago. Yeah, it does mirror it, but I just find it such... It, it's a bit... There's a lot of hubris in it because... Lorenzo thought that he was going to Ducati at a better time and that he would do better than Ross. He actually probably said it himself that he would do better than Rossi did it on the Ducati as well. So, yeah, for, for it's just a bit of karma coming back to Lorenzo. But anyway, the options there for him to stay at Ducati um, on a cut price deal, of course, because um, he's not worth, uh, I think, 1.9, I don't know, 19 million or something that they were paying him. Um, compared to the peanuts that they were giving Davizioso. Davizioso's got the better deal now because he was the guy who 
almost led them to a championship. Um, so does Lorenzo stay there on a cut price to you or Suzuki is the other option? They're looking for him to replace Andrea Iannone, who I guess for the second time in his career was going to be replaced by Lorenzo there after he got replaced at Ducati. Oh, I think uh, following his compatriots' pathway in F1, you'll go to Suzuki just as they look like they're coming good and they'll just absolutely falter and that'll be the end of his competitive career. <laughs> yes, but uh, Fernando Alonso, I hope, actually wins something before he retires, whereas Lorenzo, I couldn't really give a rats. But anyway, um, so yeah, that's a big move yet to happen, I guess. Does he go to Suzuki? Does he, go to Ducati? Does he stay at Ducati? And I guess if that Ducati seat frees up, I guess it gives um, Jack Miller an opportunity to perhaps um, end up at the factory team and, you know, the last time we had an Aussie on a factory Ducati, well, we know what happened there, so yeah, that could be the potential there for Jack Miller to step up, um, and he's had a really good year, you could say, so far. He's been far more consistent, he's been finishing races, he's been scoring points inside the top 10. Yeah, fourth at Le Mans. Yeah, and then, of course, he had pole position in Argentina as well, and if it was for that faux pas with the start of the race he could have actually won the race as well we say so yeah Miller's been real good and he's mind you he's on a year old bike as well he's on last year's Ducati so the fact that he's doing um you know a bit more delivering more consistent results than Danilo Petrucci um you know perhaps will keep him in Ducati's mind for next year if Lorenzo does decide to jump ship yeah, he does look like he's the complete package. He just needs that opportunity, but I think he's lost that uh, aggressive edge, which saw him bin it more often than not in previous seasons. Yeah, which, you know, I guess got him that tag, the, the jackass or whatever. So the fact, yeah, he's a lot more consistent this year is really good too. And Danny Pedrosa too as well. You know, there's talk now that if he's moved on by Repsol Honda, we could see Moto3 champ from last year, John Mir, come into the team as well. He's currently in Moto2 this year. So that would be interesting to have a, a young guy just plucked and put into the onto the bike instead of getting someone who's already in MotoGP um, to, to come through. Like, we always thought perhaps that would be Jack Miller's, um, I guess, birthright to have ended up on the factory Honda. But, yeah, not it wasn't to be the case, but he could be on a Ducati instead. Yeah, it could be either. You never know. In years to come, he could yet emulate uh, Casey Stoner and do both. He might be the, the chosen one at Ducati and then at Honda down the track, but things have a strange way of working themselves out. And maybe for Miller, he's re- reclaimed his his fate by moving here and he might have that opportunity within 12 months. And for Pedrosa, he's been at that Repsol Honda team now for 13 or 14 seasons. So you can see that uh, he hasn't had the ultimate prize yet. So as much as he's had his real... Um, <laughs> lifetime share you could say many times over of misfortune <laughs> yeah. at the same time there has to be a moment where they look to the the future as well as too and he you know constantly getting injured and whatnot it's just heartbreaking to see all the time that you know he's not even he's a little guy too so imagine how he's pretty tough to be able to to take all that and speaking of tough we had another Kalasic. 
um, excuse me for the pun, moment there from Cal Crutchlow over the weekend, having that nasty high side crash in qualifying, which put him in hospital overnight. And then the next morning, he's cleared by the doctors to, to come and race. And he was actually racing pretty competitively too in the bottom part of the top 10. So pretty brave stuff there from Cal Crutchlow. And um, these motorcycle guys, like proper gladiators they are these days, yeah, it's going to take a lot to stop them. They've really got to got to be at the point where they're completely knocked out um, to, to stop them from riding. You know, Casey Stoner, when he fractured his ankle a few years back, went on and finished in fourth place. And you see other guys with maybe uh, questionable collarbones or shoulders or any kind of ailment, and they uh, refuse to give in to the pain until the result's been had. Well, if you dislocate anything these days, they just pop it back into place, and it's like... There you go. You're on your bike. Whereas, um, not to not to take the piss out of footballers, but it's a lot more painful for them to to go back on the field to play. And like, I guess they don't have access to the same, um, you know, the same adrenaline or the the morphine or the pain, whatever painkillers they get in MotoGP in football. So yeah, if if you dislocate something, that's it. You're out <laughs> basically for the rest of the game. So. Yeah, for those guys, it is like watching modern-day gladiators. But uh, anyway, let's uh, leave it at that. And uh, I guess uh, wrapping things up with our sporting moments of the week. And um, this is where I come back to you because, for me, it was actually your marathon on the weekend, my moment of the week. Um, Another personal best result for you, I guess. Not the conditions you would have been hoping for, um, but still finishing ninth in your class, I believe, overall. Still a great result. And, you know, I guess next year there's always to look forward to with this one. But I guess this being the time of year it is here in Victoria, you can't really expect much from the weather, can you? Yeah, just didn't conspire right. On the morning with the the headwind, it was pretty much uh, constant from the the start as soon as i delayed the start for a few minutes for the the bus to clear the course the wind picked up off the the start which is on a little bit of a climb out of a car park and that set the tone for for the rest of that morning and did slow everyone down wasn't just myself so everyone's times were off the uh the estimate so it was a all a bit to the to the scale you could say it was more about the results and maybe for for ninth there was a lot of depth there this year so maybe not quite the top five that that had been um, thought about beforehand but still a very satisfying time in those conditions against that class of field they were were very strong and um, has to be has to be looked at more so on um, I guess gap gap to first from from last year it was definitely um, condensed compared to where it was um, 12 months ago yeah so perhaps like from what you've said uh, a more challenging race it is this one the great ocean road so you know for melbourne i guess um in the coming months perhaps you could see more improvement for yourself as far as um overall time is concerned great effort regardless anyway so yeah that's probably you know my sporting highlight amongst so many others (laughs) um that was on on the weekend so yeah the fact that you went out and did that as well and in those conditions too it's it's hats off to you so um now, if you, apart from uh, putting up your own name for your own moment of the week, <laughs> if there was anything else that stood out to you, feel free to share it. I would honestly nominate something, but I was so absent from the orbit of sport through that weekend that I, I can't really think of 
too much there. It's been a very, very much a blur this week. So even flown by, just getting back straight back into the the work regime for for both of us. So it was an oddly absent weekend when it came to to motorsport or football or, or anything like that. So I don't even have a nomination. No, I don't well, think at this point. It's well, just 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 nominate the Melbourne Storm manly fight or whatever the puncher. <laughs> I, didn't even, I didn't see a moment of that. <laughs> the puncher, I mean, the puncher won. That was good. I didn't see a moment of that. Oh so. well, you know. We'll see this weekend, then with plenty on, I'm sure you'll be able to come up with something for next week. I, I dare you to get two things for next week, then, in that case. But I anyway. I say between Monaco, Indy, and all the football and whatnot, that we'll have some uh, little good strands to, to dissect. Yeah, hopefully plenty for next week as it is. But anyway... um. We'll leave it at that for this evening, of course, as we reach the dying stages of Monaco practice anyway for the first session. So thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week to to wrap up the race, of course, and uh, see what carnage unfolds, as always, in Monaco. So take care and uh, enjoy the weekend. Till then.